Europe to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine and in Russia, for so many hundreds of thousands of the Russian people are not are as grieved and heart-stricken as, um, as the Ukrainians at this crisis. So for a few moments, with our kids still here, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, uh, open your Bible in the pews, and then we'll be seated uh, for a few moments to two pages. I want to give page numbers, make it quick for everyone. Uh, first of all, page 512 in, uh, in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles chapter 20. And let's go to those slides now, Brooklyn, uh, top of that PowerPoint. And so that's page 512 and then page 628, which takes us to Psalm 20. So we're Second Chronicles 20 and Psalm 20, all together, friends, and you may be seated now if you find that passage. want to just share these moments together and thank each of you for joining us. Those of you that are joining us live in Facebook Live, maybe later someone is watching this, we want to keep our brothers and sisters in Christ across Eastern Europe in our prayers. The vastness of this crisis is overwhelming to the, to the human mind. The heartache of war anytime is, is uh, grievous, and yet um, more especially when it clearly is an act of aggressive um, destruction by, um, by a regime bent on conquest. So we want to, first of all, give thanks to God that the scripture calls us to a solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe. So many times we're not as acutely aware of the need as we are in these hours and days since this crisis really began in, in earnest. But we can join our hearts and voices together to pray for the Ukrainian people and the Russian people and other peoples of Eastern Europe who are also many of whom and their security of their nations may be at risk as well by beginning with a um, powerful prayer that occurs in Second Chronicles 20 in a way that has a, a bit of a nice connection here with this morning with our boys and girls joining us and being a part of this before they go to their classes in that it notes in Second Chronicles chapter 20 that the little ones were there with their parents. If you see that 13th verse on page 512 in your Bible, that 13th verse of Second Chronicles 20, it says, Now all Judah with their little ones, their wives and their children, stood before the Lord. Touched on that last week when we talked about presenting ourselves to worship. And today we apply this in a new way to standing before the Lord. And um, that expression conveys in, in the richness of the, of the Hebrew understanding um, that not only is God here, not only is his presence and his dwelling eternal and eternally secure and eternally accessible to us by faith, but also that he calls us to be fully present. So often the church is not fully present where we need to be fully present. So often believers are not standing before the Lord where we need to be. There's a rich symbolism there that we can adopt here into our time of prayer. And then if we think about it like this and realize that as we pray for uh, all of those who are in harm's way at this time, 
that then we also would remember that we can voice with our lips what um, the king of Judah in that day voiced in a time of great crisis. If you'd look on page 512 and begin the reading at verse 4, notice that Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for their house, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before the temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now, I'd like to ask you to voice with me verse 12. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. O Lord, we gather in this place to pray for the millions of citizens in the Ukrainian region now who are facing such bleak prospects at this time of war. We pray for all of them, for all of those in Russia and other neighboring countries who share this burden. We know this burden goes across the body of Christ and that the body of Christ has no borders and that your the Holy Spirit is powerfully working in these hours to stir the hearts of your people to pray for your deliverance of the weak, of the vulnerable, of those endangered by the horrors of war. Father, we come to you as King Jehoshaphat did, and we say together as the people of that day did in Judah, our eyes are upon you. And on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we ask you, Lord, to, to bring about today, and this as, as evening falls in that part of the world now, Lord, powerfully move this night across, across the entire region, Lord, to stop the war, to stop the tanks, to stop the attacks, to cause, we pray, miraculous intervention that would take in a modern equivalent to what was done by your mighty power to the Egyptians when, when the wheels came off the chariots. Lord, you can stop the aggressor, and we cry out to you on behalf of the land. And Lord, knowing that our prayer pierces the veil of mystery in far more ways than we can understand, we ask you to have your way to move powerfully along across these regions 
for the hearts of the redeemed to be strengthened and encouraged, for your people to rise up boldly before these adversaries to be quickened by strength and courage. Thank you for the incredible, indomitable, and inspiring bravery of President Zelensky and the former president of Ukraine, whose response to the crisis of their people was exactly what you would describe in Scripture as a true leader laying down their lives for their people. We ask you to bless them and powerfully rally and stir millions upon millions to pray, to stand, to bless, to reach out in great compassion to those who are in any kind of suffering or distress, emotionally, physically, or for food scarcity or scarcity of medical care. Powerfully, we pray, move upon your people. Thank you, Lord, for Franklin Graham and Samaritans First and the other ministries that are already rallying to get into the hard war-torn areas to provide relief and powerfully bless each of them, we pray in Jesus' name. And would you stand now together and let's turn to this section in Psalm 20, and that's on page 628. And uh, I'm going to voice part of Psalm 20 as a prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's striking that one little thing I learned about the flag of Ukraine that I didn't know is that that flag was designed to symbolize clear blue skies over verdant wheat fields growing profusely to feed their people. And as I thought about that, I thought, what better way for us to refocus our prayers than to pray that the meaning of their flag will come, will come back into full, um, full and total uh, conquest over these very troubling days. Let's read together in Psalm 20, verse 4 through 9. And let's just read this together, lifting our prayer in the voice of the psalmist for our brothers and sisters in Christ across all of that troubled region, thanking God. God's doing something in this, in this hour. God is doing something. And in these times of testing, we, the church, are called to walk in concert with in not knowing, even as we pray, how, what the next step is before us, but to pray and continue to persevere in prayer. Let's pray together, verse 4 through 9 of Psalm 20. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, may the king answer us when we call. Save, Lord, save, Lord. We'll echo those words seven weeks from today on Palm Sunday, and we shout them out together today to our king, Hosanna. Hosanna to our king. Amen? Let's say it again. Hosanna 
to our King, for he alone is truly the Savior. And we know, we know that God has powerful resources awakening now and stirring now for the needs of his people, for those unspeakable and unimaginable heartaches in the world around us, not only in what we pray for now, but in other regions. It's a reminder to us that to put your whole heart's trust in the living power of our risen Savior means you become part of the answer. Pray, friends. Pray. Persevere in prayer. Amen. In Jesus' name. Now, as our um, explorers and pathfinders go to their classes today, uh, take a brief moment. We'll keep this pretty brief, but uh, let's greet across the aisle for a moment. Just welcome our friends. We're so glad you're here. Each of you are dear to us, and we're so glad you're joining us. Well, thank you. You're doing good. I like having you serving back there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> pulled me over. All right, you have a good time now. All right. Thanks to everyone. You may be seated, and we are, again, just grateful to be able to share in a, in a true journey of joy. The whole theme for February uh, is lighthearted living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I had to stop and think for a bit, um, when war broke out this week, what a what a timely way it is to, to really accent something that might look, might look like a contradiction on the surface. It's one of these beautiful paradoxes that the Bible gives us that um, these truths that we're looking at uh, may seem out of place at a time when something is so heartbreaking is what we see happening across Eastern Europe right now. And one of the things that really delighted me as I began to, as I was reviewing and digging into this last session here, and I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 4, if you would. There are two primary texts, Philippians 4, 10 through 13, and then uh, 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. And we'll get to those in a few moments, but I want to set it up for you in this way that uh, it is really striking that in looking at what real joy is, we kind of zeroed in this month on what it means to keep a light-hearted view of relationships, a light-hearted view of the adversities of life, a light-hearted approach to how we train our brains and just barely touched that last week. In fact, it's a whole series that I want to do that's a spinoff 
of verse 8, and I'm going to have to come back to that later because I want to do it in a, in a period of about four weeks that is uninterrupted, on what it really means. I want to give you some new resources on how to really put into practice that eighth verse, think on these things. It's really fascinating how significant that was for the Apostle Paul. But today, I'd like you to direct your attention to that uh, 13th verse to start with of Philippians 4, the, the classic verse. We all know it by heart. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then zip back to that 11th verse and notice the key word in these, uh, this brief paragraph is contentment. Paul is saying, I have learned, not that I speak in respect of want or need when he talks about the offerings that uh, Philippian churches were sending to support the ministry needs. Paul said, it's not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now what is striking is that this is this light-hearted truth, having a light-hearted way to approach life, uh, starts with an understanding that it works in all kinds of situations, including against the backdrop of the most horrific and heartbreaking things in life. Now, just as a quick thumbnail sketch, I want to ask you to think for a moment as you look at that verse of classic examples from the book of Philippians itself. There's actually, and I'm just going to mention this very quickly because I want us to think about what Paul is talking about in, in contentment. He's talking about a kind of happiness, yes, indeed, a kind of happiness that can be cultivated. He talks about cultivating contentment. So this is a word in itself, that 11th verse of Philippians 4, that, that derives from the Greek language. It, the word is archeo, and it's very interesting that Paul, in verse 13, gives us this phrase, through Christ who strengthens me. If we miss that, if we don't connect the dot, if we don't connect the reality of what Paul is talking about between verse 11 and verse 13, then we will think wrongly about happiness. Yes, we talked about what is a biblical view of happiness. So we're going to complete that this week because I believe if we properly understand what happened to Paul, it fits absolutely, yes, it fits today against the backdrop of some of the most horrific news that has struck us in quite some time in the terms of war. It is a horrible, difficult time and in that sense. And, and yet what I find really remarkable here is that when you look at how Paul addresses his own predicament <laughs> in Philippians, it is a classic and vivid example of why there is never a day in your walk with God, when you are without his gift of joy. It may sound contradictory, but there is a joy in Christ that supersedes the circumstances. It does not in any way diminish the harshness of the circumstances. If we read the text with our kind of flippant American brains, we can easily miss the depth 
and the, the, the richness of what Paul is saying. Now, one clue is in the word itself. The word contentment he uses, archaeo, uh, in, in uh, the Stoic part of the Greek culture, they used that same word in the 300 years prior to Paul's writing that influenced the Koine Greek of his day. And the Stoics' view of this was, was very telling. Their view of strength and manhood and manliness and uh, virility was being sufficient within oneself. Kind of a self-possessed stoicism. We think of being stoic being kind of tight-lipped and facing the wind with an indomitable courage. And yet their concept was based on human power and human energy and human initiative. Paul comes along and gives us the same word in the middle voice, which simply means that he talks about an internal reality of contentment through Christ who strengthens me. And, and when he gives us that, he does kind of in one verse what we did in our first three sessions in looking at this section of Paul's life and comparing it to the to the joy of Peter and John coming out of that uh, time of being flogged by the Sanhedrin, rejoicing and giving praise to God that they were counted worthy to bear the name of Jesus in such a way. Again and again, you get the picture that the, against it is against the backdrop of evil, against the backdrop of harshness, against the backdrop of adversity, against the backdrop of persecution, against the backdrop of maybe in your life some circumstance that's not very happy. And you say, why in the world would I want a pastor talking about happiness? I'm not happy and I don't expect to be happy. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure nobody here is quite, quite that uh, cynical. But what I was struck by was how quickly, how wonderfully the Bible addresses the true heart issues, including things about how you can not only survive but thrive. So Paul gave us kind of a, a, a bit of a, of a window into his world in this chapter when he said, stand firm in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. We spent some time on that third one, keep reasonable expectations about the people around you because nothing sinks a marital happiness, let's say, for example, faster than a husband or wife having totally unrealis unrealistic expectations of their spouse. Nothing sinks a church's morale quicker than people having totally unrealistic expectations of other Christians. Nothing sinks a team of mission or a team of work or a team in business faster than people who have exaggerated expectations of what other people should do and oftentimes gauge their level of satisfaction in life based on whether someone or someones around them are meeting their perceived expectations. That is a, that is a downward spiral for anybody's emotions. So Paul addresses that when he looks at uh, a variety of of internal issues there among the Philippians. And then, of course, specific prayer, that fourth one, of course, is at the heart of this. We talked about translating or taking a bad circumstance 
And rather than just brooding over it or getting moody about it or dwelling upon it, we convert that troubled emotion. We convert the harshness of a really bad situation, truly bad situation, we convert it into a believing prayer. And verse 6 says, make it a petition. I think of it like that great scene in, in um, the Old Testament where Hezekiah, it's described in Isaiah's prophecy too, where Hezekiah brought uh, the threatening letter from Rabshika, the Assyrian general who was determined to destroy Jerusalem. And Hezekiah comes and he spreads out. He physically goes to the temple and he unrolls the scroll of the very threatening letter that he got from the Assyrian commander. And he spread that scroll out before God. That's a picture of Philippians 4, 6. Bring your petition to God. He wants you to bring it personally, specifically, expectantly, and I always like to add this, bring it gratefully. Paul said it in verse 6, bring it with thanksgiving. Why, Paul? Because we're praising God in advance of the answer. And this is true, not just of a hangnail or a headache. Or a flat tire. Or a little mix-up. No, this is true of the heaviest, harshest, hardest, most heartbreaking problems that we encounter in life. Bring it to God and convert your deepest agony into a specific prayer. No, it doesn't have to be any specific wording. It's just out of our hearts. And we bring it to God and we're specific about it and we're praising him before we see the answer. Because why? God, you are good. Specific prayer. And then, of course, that last one I mentioned, and we'll come back to that in a series, maybe in May. Think well to thrive. And so when we kind of apply this, uh, again, this whole thing to life, we see there's a holistic picture in in this entire passage that when we get to verse 11 to 13 we're focusing upon the fact that there is a there's a freedom of the heart that comes through this that is distinguished by Paul's wording through Christ who strengthened me in other words Paul is saying what I'm giving you and what I'm living in is impossible in my own innate strength no, I can say I've learned to be content with some very unfavorable circumstances, not because I'm some kind of a stoic, not because I just tighten my bottom lip and, uh, and, and just kind of grin and bear it. No, Paul's describing a quality of contentment when he speaks of thinking on these things that leads us into a faith-filled laughter. F.F. Bruce, a noted uh, biblical scholar from Great Britain back in the 1960s, made an observation about how the brain connects to this vivid, holistic example in the life of Paul. And I love this. He said, the mind is dyed by the color of its waking thoughts. 
The mind is dyed by the color of its waking thoughts. So when he says think on these things, it's because, yes, it's true that through Christ alone, through his risen life, through the redemptive power of knowing our conquering Savior, yes, we can actively use our brains in an effective way. Um, I brought a message to you last summer that ties to this about beware of the Bible bandits. And the reason I talked about beware of the Bible bandits, simple reason, because there are some people who have taken a legitimate truth in the Bible and they've stretched it way out of proportion, taught it out of context, or or used it as a springboard for false teaching. We know that, don't we? It's possible for somebody to take one phrase out of context and then build a completely false edifice of heresy on it. An example would be uh, Proverbs, and I promise I'm not going to digress far, but it's important. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, some of us heard that completely distorted in its real application, when, uh, in my case, as a 16, 17-year-old, when I heard it just all constantly from certain voices about how you can create anything with your brain, you can speak with the words of your mouth, you can speak things into existence. It was the word faith heresy, and it was a, it was a whole complex of heretical, non-biblical things about it. But here's why I talked about the Bible bandits last summer. Many people, because of a heresy, please hear me, pe- because of a heresy over here, on a, sub, a subject, many people will reject the entire biblical truth and miss the value of it. Let me come back to my point. The Bible, yes, talks about the value of the brain. Yes, we are to actively engage our brain. Yes, your mind has a lot to do with the attitude you convey to the people around you. I love the way that uh, Dr. Sherwood Wirt, who was the founder, actually, of the Decision Magazine for the Billy Graham Evangelist Association back in the, back in the day, and, and wrote a wonderful book in the mid-90s called Jesus, Man of Joy. And in his book, Dr. Wirt delved into this topic that I've been talking about in light of the fact that too many people see Jesus in a sour disposition, or at least in a joyless way. And he began to plumb the depth of theological writings and all kinds of literature. And his, his goal was to show that the church at large has suffered from a jaded view of Jesus as if, as if joy and happiness were not a part of his agenda. And what he pointed out really was in some very moving and intriguing ways, the ways that the lives of the apostles demonstrate for us the vivid power of a sustaining joyfulness that truly does come from your living relationship with Christ. So don't let the Bible bandits steal from you the value of this fact that you too can say, I can do. Would you say it with me again? I can do all things Through Christ who strengthens me. This is not mind over matter. This is not positive thinking. This is not some some pie in the sky, rose-colored glasses, denying reality 
hyper-faith. That's not what it is. It is realizing, let me put it this way, it, let me put it positively and negatively, it does not honor God for us to go around with a sour attitude. Bluntly, flatly, let me say that. It would be a terrible mistake, and it's why Dr. Wirt wrote this book in the 90s, Jesus, Man of Joy, because he observed <laughs> that it's not easy for us in the Western world today to understand the way that this joy changed the dynamics of the culture in such a way that we have on the day of Pentecost, the accusation that was made against those filled with the Holy Spirit was, these men must be drunken with new wine. And remember, what did Peter do? Peter got up when he began to preach and stilled the roar of the crowd and said, oh, no, 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 these men are not drunken, as he supposed, seeing it's the, it's the third hour of the day. No, 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 this joy, this exuberance, this liveliness, this vitality is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your young men shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, your handmaidens and your maidservants shall prophesy and I will pour out of my spirit in those days. So clearly the laughter of the heart set free as Dr. Wirt put it here in this quote I'm sharing with you, this laughter was born in the Garden of Eden. I like the way Elizabeth Elliot explained it. She said, real obedience always leads finally to joy. Dr. Ed Weed, in a great little book about marriage relationships called Love Life for Every Married Couple, made this observation. As I put the principles of the Bible into practice, I discovered that obedience took on the bright colors of joy. When Dr. Wirt was examining this about the character of Jesus, he made this observation that to be set free by Jesus Christ, think of this now, is to revel in the new birth. It is to exude happiness, to celebrate with joy in the knowledge that one's sins have been forgiven because of the vicarious sacrifice of Jesus who went to the cross and shed his blood for us and our salvation. And it is to be understood from all of this that when Jesus said he persevered against the horrors of Golgotha's hill, why? Because of the joy set before him. This kind of joy cannot be compartmentalized. It suffuses the whole of existence and blows the dismal clouds of unbelief out to sea. By a miracle of grace, the Holy Spirit continues to make that joy available to us today. Now you might step back and say, now you mean, Pastor, against terrible news on our computer screens and our tablets and our mobile phones? Yes against the heartache I've experienced because somebody talked behind my back and betrayed me and, and really deeply wounded my soul? Yes. Against the backdrop of a broken dream of something I invested in and put money and time and energy and it didn't materialize the way I'd hoped? You mean, you mean Christ, the Lord, 
dwelling in me by his Holy Spirit can give me this new wine of joy? Yes! I mean it. I mean it. I mean it. I mean it. Turn around and tell somebody. He means it. <laughs> because what we got to do together <laughs> is say, what kind of happy should you really be aiming for? Now, I knew as soon as I wrote that down the other day, somebody might say, oh, no, Christians are not supposed to be. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not supposed to aim for happiness. No, no, no. We're holy people. No. God's holiness. We talked about it last week. God's holiness is the premier goal. Amen. Think of it again. Romans eight twenty nine to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's goal. God's goal is not our happiness. God's goal is not our happiness. God's goal is our conformity to Jesus, but guess what? That brings the most exquisite, exuberant happiness you can possibly imagine. What I'm asking you to think about is what legitimately does the Bible tell us should be our aim in this regard? Now remember, we said the other text I'd like you to think about today here briefly is 1 Timothy 6.6, and look at it here and just read it aloud with me. But godliness actually is a means. Would you read it with me? But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Paul, in that sixth chapter of 1 Timothy, is, is, is critiquing and strongly condemning any lust after money, any avaricious, greedy instinct that might creep into the hearts of the redeemed people of God. He's clearly showing that what people are passionate about when they can't get money off their mind is an incipient form of idolatry. And yet as he condemns that in 1 Timothy 6, verse 4 to 5, he then turns around and says, however, don't forget, don't forget, listen, that godliness is a means of great gain. What kind of gain? Oh, a riches, a wealth that no money can ever touch, can ever buy. A gain of the fullness of life-giving joy in God. Don't let the Bible bandits steal the good part of a positive view of life for you. We're not a sour people trying to prop up the church of the frozen chosen. We're a people on a move. We're a people on the go. We're a people with God-given goals and Christ-centered vision who can taste and, yes, imbibe on the new wine of a living daily relationship with our king. Now, how do we know we can do that? Well, the Bible uses a word again and again and again that shows us that this is part of the blessing that Jesus promised his disciples when he said in Matthew 13, 16, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears. Now, this is going to feel like kindergarten or Captain Kangaroo here. I'm so sorry, but I'm going to ask you to touch your eyes for a minute. Blessed are my eyes. Don't you say it? Blessed are my eyes. And then say, for they see. <laughs> now, blessed are my ears. Come on, Captain Kangaroo. Blessed are my ears. Blessed are my ears. Let's say it. Blessed are my ears, for they hear. Now, why did Jesus say that in Matthew 13, 16? 
it's because of the very thing Paul's talking about here. In Christ, through Christ, the risen King, the Holy Spirit empowers you to see the kingdom. Remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and said, unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom. But just before he said that, he said, you can't enter the kingdom. The sequence is important. Jesus was saying, no one can see the kingdom until they've entered. But once they've entered, their eyes can be opened to see the kingdom. Why? Because simply, that person who's accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, committed their heart to him, to trust in him for their life and their salvation, to come under his reign in their life. That's what giving Christ your heart is. I'm coming under your lordship. I'm coming under your reign. I'm committing it all to you. And Nicodemus was being told, once that entrance has been made, then the lights come on. The eyes can be opened. It's why the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.16 for the church at Ephesus and focused his prayer on the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened. Why? That you might come to know the hope of your calling and the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. It's like once you've got the right key at the safe deposit box at the bank, and your key matches the banker's key, unless your key matches the banker's key, you're, in, you're out of luck. But when your key matches the banker's key, and Christ is telling us, the key I'm giving you is the lordship of Jesus over your life. Paul is saying the key that's in my hand matches the key of the Lord, so I can go to that vault, and I can open the vault of his eternal treasures, and know that in principle, it all belongs to me because I belong to him. Paul distinguished contentment in Philippians 4.11 radically from the Greek Stoics who depended on themselves. W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament words renders that contentment, as Paul used it in this way, an internal satisfaction that comes from knowing the sufficiency is of him. So in other words, Christ dwelling in us. So the blessing principle in the Bible has many aspects, but four stand out. A blessing from God that Jesus is talking about, that Paul is exemplifying, first is something only God can bestow. Only God can give this kind. This is the kind of happy we're talking about. Not a humanly manufactured happiness. The human heart with its sinfulness and its falling failings can never create the kind of contentment, Paul, this jewel, this sparkling gem of contentment that Paul said in his life superseded some incredibly difficult circumstances. The second thing that a blessing does is it becomes an abiding assurance of something we cannot see with our natural eyes. You're blessed. You're blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1-2 says, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. So when you grasp it, you realize, not only should I be happy against all the bad news, not only, not only should I retain my joy and, and, and ramp up my joy in honor of Christ, but I 
No, not only does it not honor Jesus for a sour Christian to go around dragging her lip over the back of the pew, but it glorifies God for the redeemed to say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he's redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And for our brothers and sisters in crisis and in turmoil and under great pressure in Ukraine, we can boldly proclaim their king, their Lord, is their source and ours, and we'll stand alongside them and boldly believe God for something better to come. Now, everything I've said about blessing, now let me finish blessing. It's a recipient becomes a carrier. It's very important. Paul, God said to Abraham, in blessing I will bless you. I will bless you that you might be a blessing. That's the whole principle. And then finally, that a blessing is an unlimited capacity for refilling, refreshing, and reviving. In other words, when God blesses something, he never takes it back. God's not an Indian giver. And his blessing in Christ is extensive, far-reaching, and when you receive it, you become a carrier of the blessing. But you see, everything I've said here really echoes a kind of a paradox and we'll close with this because I think it helps us realize why that contentment through Christ alone is so crucial in Paul's writing. Now, the section that I lift this from is longer than we can read in these remaining 60 seconds for this guy who needs to not go over time. And you, when you see it in the text, though, if you go to your own Bible, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3, all the way down through the uh, 10th verse, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3 to 10, you could see this entire thing. And if you'll go to there this evening, maybe at home, read that section. And in that section, you'll find paradox after paradox in the life of the Apostle Paul. He was falsely accused and run and, and spoken against and maligned and encountered all kinds of not only physical dangers, but how many of you know the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, that that's one of the biggest lies your mom ever told you? My mom told me that lie. I used to tease her. I'd say, Mom, that was a lie. Do you know that? She said, yeah, I know. No, that was a lie. Sticks and stones can hurt, can hurt you, but vicious words, betrayal, gossip, backbiting, knife in the back, somebody you trusted who's now going around bad-mouthing you, that hurts, and it lasts. <laughs> it lasts for a while, doesn't it? So Paul, what I'm saying, why am I saying? Because God, Paul got all of that. And it culminates, 2 Corinthians 6, culminates in this amazing paradox. And say it aloud with me, those red words real loudly. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He said, he said we're, we're outcast, but in God we belong. We're criticized, but Christ is our redeemer and our advocate. You know, he, go, he goes through all of these paradoxes. And say it again, the red words again. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He echoed a truth embedded in an obscure part of Ecclesiastes where the writer of Ecclesiastes said, Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, the heart may still be happy. This is a, a hint at something that was fully blossomed in the Apostle Paul's life. There is a happiness of the heart that transcends and goes far beyond any kind of temporary hardship. And temporary is relative <laughs> because when we understand Christ is Lord of our lives, then we come to this realization, yes, yes, in Christ alone, I can walk with a contentment of heart 
that is not tied directly to my circumstances. However, as I walk with Christ, as I grow in Him, it will affect my circumstances. And the main reason it will affect my circumstances is because the carrier of this kingdom blessing is a life-giving saint. It is someone who shines in times of great pressure, not because of what's in her naturally, not because of his intense innate strength, but because he or she is saying, I can do, once again, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're going to say it one more time, and this time I want you to say it with me, would you? And then shout out the through Christ. Could you? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, we're thankful for this. We are really thankful. We are glad. We are grateful that there is a genuine gem of contentment that can sparkle against the harsh backdrop of the things that we see that, frankly, in our TVs, in our tablets, in our computer screens, some of what we see can just be so heartbreaking. It can leave saints just totally feeling in the doldrums. Where do we go from here? But Lord, as we look at the Apostle Paul facing innumerable obstacles that felt incredibly and intensely overwhelming. That joyous realization of the risen Christ and your glory mightily working in him resulted in those light-hearted, life-giving praises. Yes, I have learned in whatsoever state I am to truly be content in the king's presence. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand together?